of our heart and the next breath of our lungs. We thank you that you sustain us, that you are our all in all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day of blessing that you've given to us. May we each have eyes to see your blessings. And Lord, may we be attentive today to the things you have for us from your word that we would allow you to apply the truths as you see fit to each one of our lives and the needs that each one of us has. We thank you for the word of God in our own language, in our heart language. We praise you for that great privilege that we have to have that. And we pray, Lord, for the Bible translators around the world as they continue to labor to put uh, your word into the heart language of many people, tribes and tongues. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for your care of us this week. And Lord, this day, may we just be a blessing to you and a blessing to one another. And we thank you, Lord, for this day of life. We uh, pray for our country, Lord, and we pray for our president, others in leadership, that they'd have a heart to seek your wisdom. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us here today and that you are the object of our adoration and our praise and that may we exalt your name uh, forever and ever. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome. As uh, Bill read that passage for us, you can see why I did not preach on that passage on Mother's Day. I hope you can see that. One of the beauties of Bible exposition when you preach through a book of the Bible is you cannot pick and choose what you want it to say. And uh, if we were a church that believed in felt needs preaching or topical preaching, I would probably skip over this passage. And uh, we would do something else about uh, uh, three better ways to have a marriage or something like that. But anyway, this is very relevant, and we will not avoid it because we are studying through the book of James. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to this little letter that we have been going through in the book of James towards the end of your Bibles. Remember, James is written to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, people who have uh, placed uh, their belief in Jesus for everlasting life, and they are Hebrew Christians. This is the earliest book that is written in our New Testament, written probably, I believe, at least by 36 A.D., uh, and it's earlier than Galatians, which is the next nearest in chronological time, which was written in A.D. 49. And so uh, James is a very Jewish book. Of course, James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the leader at the Church of Jerusalem. And he was most likely, tradition tells us, martyred in about 62 A.D. for his faith. But James uh, has some very strong words for us uh, throughout this letter. Uh, and so we are going to do that today. It's interesting, as I was thinking through the whole issue of conflict, and in fact, uh, James calls it war, I was thinking of war, and it seems like that it is just a constant in life, whether on the international platform, nationally, there's always conflict, it seems like. In fact, some scholars have said there have been very few years in human history where there's been total peace on this globe. And yet, uh, I would venture to say that there's very few years that we have total peace within our own souls because there's always conflict, and James is concerned about that. But I was thinking about the different wars during my lifetime, and there have been many, and there are ongoing wars, and some of you have participated in some of those. And uh, as a nation, we've participated in many. But there are some wars perhaps you've never heard of. Have you ever heard of the War of the Whiskers? The War of the Whiskers, okay? That's one of my favorites, personally. Uh, it was a, a jocular term or a joking term used for the long conflict between medieval France and England 
And it, refu- it refers to Louis VII, who refused to shave off his beard when he came back from the Crusades while he was uh, fighting in the, in the Middle East. And his wife, uh, Eleanor, at the time demanded that he shave off his beard. He refused, so she annulled their marriage, and he went to, she went to England and married Henry II. And uh, so that's called the War of the Whiskers. This quarrel uh, holistically led the war between the two nations over English territory and France. So the War of the Whiskers. Again, it just proves how dumb human beings can be over time. So, uh, or, or how about this war? The War of the Oaken Bucket. The War of the Oaken Bucket. I had not heard of this one, but it was fought in 1325 between two city-states, Bologna and Modena in northern Italy. And the reason, evidently, is because the Modenese soldiers snuck into the city, stole the bucket from the city well, and uh, it, was in a, it was one of the episodes in a 300-year-long struggle between uh, two different factions in Italy. And evidently, if you go to Modena, Italy, the bucket still hangs there, and you can see the bucket. It sounds like a fraternity prank to me, uh, but it ended up in conflict. Or this one, uh, another one of my favorites, is the War of Jenkins' Ear. The War of Jenkins' Ear. It was a conflict between Britain and Spain that lasted from 1739 to 1748, and it, <clears throat> with its major operations ending by 1742. British historian Thomas Carlyle in 1858 referred to Jenkins' ear. Uh, Jenkins was Robert Jenkins. He was the captain of a British merchant ship, and evidently they cut his ear off. The Spanish did. And so that's known as the War of Jenkins' ear. Well, war is a fact of life, sadly. And in spite of peace treaties, in spite of world peace organizations, peacekeepers, and threats of atomic weapons, uh, it's still with us today. And uh, not only are there wars between nations, but there are wars of one kind or another on every level of life. And perhaps today you're involved in a conflict of some type with someone or some people or some organization somewhere. But life is full of the potential for conflict. It seems like if we don't, if conflict doesn't find us, we'll make it up. It has been curious to me to follow some of the comments about our new roundabout here in town. And the construction. Uh, it's People are looking for conflict. And I want to say, go live in Chicago or Dallas. And it's like this all the time. You know, it's just like this all the time. So, uh, But uh, for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the normal Christian life? What are we called to uh, relating to others, relating to the whole issue of conflict ourselves, with ourselves and with God in this area? So James, remember the letter to uh, James writes to these believers. They're scattered in the dispersion that's recorded in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, where the early Christians were persecuted. It was primarily a Jewish movement in Jerusalem, in Israel, and they were scattered. And so James is writing, and he's writing them with ethical instructions. In other words, how to live out your faith. We don't find doctrine. James is not a book of doctrine, but it is a book about exhortation and ethical instruction on how to live the Christian life. I find that the major problem with James is that it's not that it's not that it's hard to understand. Some books of the Bible are difficult. Go to Zechariah and understand that. That takes some some Bible in-depth study. It's not that James is hard to understand. The problem with James is it's understandable 
on a very basic level. You can read through the letter of James, and yes, there's some difficult areas to translate, but yet it's very clear. James is very clear in his ethical instruction. Uh, James discusses in this paragraph that was read for us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 and following, this is a two-part sermon, uh, that this whole issue of conflict and war within our lives. But really, we have to understand the context of what, near context of what he was saying. You see that big number four in your Bible, on the page of your Bible? James didn't put that there, okay? Somebody later put that big number four there, and uh, they're trying to help us. I understand that and the verse numbers and all of that. But yet sometimes it causes an unnatural break in the flow of thought. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 13, we see James is asking a question. He's good at asking rhetorical questions. Who among you is wise with understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. And then he goes on to compare earthly wisdom with heavenly wisdom. And he lays those out. Now listen to what earthly wisdom is. He said, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, in other words, heavenly wisdom, but is earthly, natural, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every little thing. And then he goes on to describe heaven from, or wisdom from God in verse 17. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And he's talking about Christians being the person who is a peacemaker. You know, the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, a peacekeeper is what we send to troubled areas and they have weapons and they just keep the two sides apart. Whereas peacemakers are like the diplomats who are trying to work out a peace that's good for everybody and Christians are called to be peacemakers. And then he goes on to ask another question in verse one, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, remember, when we are reading James, we're only hearing his end of the telephone conversation. He's talking to the Hebrew Christians. He knows a lot about them. And so we can get an understanding of what is going on in these communities that are scattered, that are having problems. And he is exhorting them. He's encouraging them. He's admonishing them to live out what they say they believe. And so he's saying that I hear that you guys have lots of quarrels and conflicts because you're under great pressure. You're, you're being persecuted and there's difficulty. You've been scattered from your homes. But what is the source, he says? And he gives us this whole list here of three things, three wars that are going on in every human being's life. First of all, there is war with others. There is conflict with each other. Then there is conflict within ourselves, and then conflict with God himself. And he's going to expand upon that here this morning. This conflict among us or with each other, James asked this question. I looked at those words, the source of quarrels and conflicts, and with my Bible software, I can do original language study and study these words out and see what they really mean. Well, it means quarrels and conflicts, okay? I think we all know what that means. James is not complicated. And our translators have translated that accurately. Strife, conflict, quarreling. And it's the question of the ages. And if you're familiar with the Bibles, you recognize it started clear back in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Remember the two brothers? One ends up getting murdered and the other one's a murderer. That's the question as old as Cain and Abel. What is the source of these quarrels? Some of you are old enough to remember the Los Angeles riots that began in 1992, sometimes called the Rodney King riots. In 1991, Rodney King was uh, brutally 
uh, beat up by the Los Angeles police, and that sparked the Los Angeles riots. And during those riots, Rodney King, his famous phrase, he said, can we all get along? And it's been paraphrased as, can't we all just get along? And that is just a great question that Rodney King uh, uh, raises in that. Either way, the answer seems to be no. Nothing has changed since Mr. King uttered those words 27 years ago. Uh, You know, all we have to do is read the news and look at events in the nation today around us that swirl around us and we're reminded that we are a nation divided by race, by culture, by religion, and most certainly by politics. We are divided. We don't agree with each other. And obviously, often we don't like each other. And sometimes we hate each other. And that's very evident if you read anything on social media that's politically uh, motivated there. And so what about Christians? Are we supposed to be like that? Are we supposed to be involved in that kind of discussion and those things? Uh, You know, the psalmist writes in Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Yeah, what a great psalm. And yet, I think we recognize from Scripture alone that Many times, the brethren and the sisteren do not love and live in harmony together, do they? And I think every church at some point, if they're old enough, have gone through some conflict. And so we recognize, like I mentioned, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. Lot caused a quarrel with his uncle Abraham in Genesis 13. Absalom created a war for his father David in 2 Samuel 13 through 18. Even the disciples created difficulties for Jesus Christ when they argued about who was the greatest in the kingdom in Luke chapter 9. And when you examine the early churches in the New Testament, you discover that they had their shares of disagreements. The Corinthian church where they were competing with each other and they were even suing each other in court and they were not living out their faith. The Galatian believers were biting and devouring one another in Galatians 5. Paul even had to admonish the sweet church at Philippi to cultivate spiritual unity. That was his goal for them. And even uh, the church at uh, Philippi also had problems with people not getting along with each other. The Ephesian church had problems. And, of course, here in James, this earliest church, he is dealing with people who are quarreling, and having conflict among themselves with each other. And so if we yield to the worldly wisdom up above at the end of chapter 3, that is what it's going to produce. That's the produce of worldly wisdom, a spiritual heart disease that destroys unity. It kills joy. It evaporates prayer. It dulls an appetite for God's word. It deadens worship. It turns the focus from winning the lost to winning the argument. In fact, uh, when I was a brand-new Christian, of course, I grew up in Baptist churches, but I was just a little pagan and then grew up into an adult pagan. Uh, but after I was a, believed in Jesus for everlasting life at age 28, uh, in the Baptist church we were involved in over in Montana, uh, we used to jokingly call business meetings fistfights on the floor. And uh, to our shame, you know, and I think this church has a history of that going way back. And we don't want to live like this. And this is what James is addressing. What is the source of these quarrels. And it's the outworking here. He says, the source, there is our pleasures. If you look there, there is conflict within ourselves. What is the source? It's inside of us. It begins with each of us as individuals. And he spends some time, the second part of verse one through verse three, addressing this issue. And look at the end of verse one, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. 
the pleasures there is the word that is translated, we have it in our English as hedonism. Now, hedonism, pleasures or passions, that translates a Greek word, uh, which means the pursuit of our personal happiness at any cost. At any cost. I want what I want. In fact, one writer said, I want what we want when we want it, and we won't be happy until we get what we want. And that's typically what happens. Our sources are pleasures, and they wage war. Notice his words here. They wage war in your members. In other words, in your physical body, in yourself. This is waging war when we want this hedonism, this lust, this desire. Look at verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Boy, these are strong words. James is going after us. He is really going after us here. We commit murders. I was thinking about that and thinking about when I was about 11 years old, my dad on Saturdays, we would go over uh, to uh, West Denver. We lived in southwest Denver, and we'd go up to Alameda Avenue, and we'd go to a coin dealer. He had a little shop, and he had all these uh, antique coins and foreign coins, and, and I would go in there, and I'd save some money from my paper route, and I'd try to buy some neat coins, and, and he was always very gentle and generous with me, and it was, he was just a really nice guy. And then one day my dad came to me and I asked him if we were going to go to the coin shop. He said, no, it's closed now because the owner of the coin shop got in an argument with somebody in the parking lot and killed them. And he is going to prison. And that just, I just was shocked that somebody seemingly so nice would do something like that. But murder is more than just physical death. Jesus expanded on it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, where he said that to hate your brother is to commit murder in your heart. We murder with our words. We murder with our rumors. We murder with our insults. We murder with our lives and uh, with our lies. And so uh, it's more about our attitude about others and how we treat others. You know, I want you to think of somebody in your life today that you have never forgiven. And maybe you've got a pretty clean slate, and that's good, and I praise God for it. But if there's somebody in your life you've never forgiven, you need to forgive them. And you ask how, and you're saying, Pastor, you don't know what he, they did to me. And you don't know, you know, they left, and they never did anything, you know, and they won't make this right. Uh, you know, there's two levels of forgiveness. There's vertical forgiveness and horizontal forgiveness. And yes, that person may not be available for you to forgive them. But you can ask in the Lord Jesus Christ that he change your heart. And that he would take, you can see this is real personal for me. He can take a hard thing and turn it into glory. So if you have that in your life, you need to forgive them in Jesus and let Jesus handle it. You know, because forgiveness is really releasing the punishment that you would want to place on that person. That's what forgiveness is, is I want to get retribution. I want punishment. And you need to release that to Jesus. <clears throat> Some of you have read the book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini, uh, the, the uh, Olympic runner who fought in World War II and his plane crashed and he was captured by the Japanese. And uh, in that book, Unbroken, and then there was a film made about it, although the film forgot to tell us the rest of the story. Uh, but Louis Zamperini was treated harshly, I mean, brutalized in the, his years in the Japanese prison camp. 
And uh, then after the war, uh, the Lord opened his eyes to the truth of who he was, and he got saved. And he actually, and then he was on, I think, on staff with Billy Graham uh, ministry, and he was quite a public speaker, but he forgave his captors and he even traveled back uh, to Japan and met with some of them. Uh, but the one who brutalized him the most, the prison guard who brutalized him the most, if you remember that story, uh, would refuse to meet with Lewis and when Lewis went to Japan. And yet he forgave that man. And we think, how could you do that? I mean, that is, how could you do that? And yet, it's interesting. How can God forgive us? In Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, the end of that, if you want to know what it means to be the church, the end of that verse says, so be kind, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We don't want to be committing murder, even if it's just in our hearts, in our attitudes. And so we need to recognize that there is conflict within ourselves. The third word there is envious. If you go back to your text in James chapter 4, he tells us there that the result of this, the source, is that you commit murder, you are envious, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not because you do not, you do not have because you do not ask And he's telling us that we are envious. Unsatisfied desire leads to deep resentment when we don't get our way, when we don't get what we want. And sometimes that word is translated covet or covetousness, and it means to boil with envy. This is particularly the sin of moderately successful people because we can't stand to see others do better than we're doing, really. We fight and quarrel and call names. Here are some symptoms of it. When we secretly think that we would have done better if we've gotten the right breaks. In other words, we're the victim. When we temper our compliments when the world, with the word but, or when we gloat when someone gets caught because they had it coming to them, or we can't bear to hear our friends complimented in our presence, when we are quicker to criticize than we are to praise. And it leads to fighting and quarreling because we are asking amiss. Remember, these are believers. This is written to believers And as we pray, we can ask amiss of what we want God to do. And so the outcome of this hedonism is we're not receiving because we're asking amiss. We exercise wrong motives in our prayers to spend it on our own pleasures, James says. Notice that we observe it as consumers so we can spend whatever God would bless us with on our own pleasures. Sometimes it's an interesting uh, exercise to actually write down your prayer request as you pray. And then to review them after a week or two and see how many of these would Jesus pray? How many of these would he be really concerned about? Or are we spending them on our own pleasures? So we have conflict with others. We have conflict within ourselves. And then thirdly, we have conflict or war with God himself. In chapter 4, 4 through 6, again, in chapter 4, 4 through 6, he writes, You adulteresses, boy, that is strong terminology, isn't it? In fact, uh, we see that uh, there is a regression in these verses. There's a downward spiral. In verse 4, he calls them, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is self-reliance when we, uh, we, we do not have because we don't ask 
we're not praying correctly or accurately. Uh, we feel like we can handle our life on our own. Secondly, there is selfish prayer in this downward spiral. Here James is thinking about those times as we're treating God as, uh, like one author said, a celestial bellhop who brings us whatever we want whenever we want it when we ring the bell. And then third, there's spiritual adultery. At first, we might think James is being kind of extreme here. In fact, if you use the NIV translation, it says, you adulterous people, which is actually not what the Greek is saying here, the Greek text. It's a feminine noun. It should be translated, you adulteresses. And it's very specific. Why is it specific? Because remember, his original audience were Jewish in background, and the Jewish readers or the hearers of this letter, when it was read to them, would instantly recognize that this was from the Old Testament. God repeatedly compared his unfaithful people to an adulterous woman who went chasing after pagan men. Judges 2.17 uses very strong language to describe the nation of Israel male and female. It says there, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after gods and bowed down to them. It's easy to see what spiritual adultery means when you look back at the history of Israel in the Old Testament. They were going after the gods of the Canaanites, and it was spiritual adultery, and they started worshiping Baal. And it's not exactly that they abandoned Yahweh God, the God of Israel, The children of Israel went whoring after other gods by adding these other gods to the one true God of the people. They worshiped Jehovah God, but built uh, these places of worship for these pagan gods that they adopted and uh, in honor of Moloch and Baal. And this was the true spiritual adultery of the nation Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, they would say, well, we're still worshiping the God of Israel. And yet he said they were adulteresses in that. And so the early, uh, these early recipients of this letter, these Hebrew Christians would understand exactly what he was meaning. And James speaks that of us loving the world. Now we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. He's not referring to this globe that we live on, this planet. He's referring to a world system that leaves God out of the equation. The world is selfish to the core. It operates on a level of pure human desire. And the world has no use for God. And the world is opposed to God and destined for utter utter destruction in 1 John. And so how does that happen? Well, it means we are part of this. We start being influenced by this world system. And we think in in, uh, an adulterous relationship in a marriage we recognize that there is a process by which that occurs. It culminates in the act of adultery. And uh, nobody wakes up, no Christian wakes up and says, oh, I think I'll commit adultery today. But it happens subtly, and it leads to estrangement and creates loneliness and opens doors to other people. And one thing leads to another, and suddenly the marriage is in ruins. But the same way in the spiritual realm, we never set out to be unfaithful to God. Uh, We don't do that, but far from it. But our God is a jealous lover, and we'll get to that in a moment. He wants our allegiance, soul, and spirit. Spiritual adultery happens because we get our feelings hurt, because the church hurts us, somebody mistreats us, a friend mistreats us. Little by little, anger gets a foothold in the heart. And from that base camp of sin, Satan can now attack in any direction he wants to attack. And meanwhile, we have become an enemy of God. There's no middle ground. 
even while attending church and going through all the motions, our lust for pleasure has hardened into spiritual adultery. We're unfaithful to God, even while singing his praises on a Sunday morning. You know, the root cause of every conflict, of every war, is internal and external. It's a rebellion against God and his will. At the beginning of creation, you, we read the creation story in Genesis, and there's perfect harmony. But then Adam and Eve fell, and their sin entered into the world, lawlessness and rebellion against God. And so how, do we, how, do we, how does a believer declare war against God? By being friendly with God's enemies is how that happens. How do we get back to God? How does this adulterous believer get back in right relationship with God? First of all, it's recognizing in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Or do you not think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God is a jealous God, and he's opposed to the proud. Now, we think of jealousy in negative terms on a human level. It is bad, and yet Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Verse 5 is difficult to understand, but I believe that it's a reference to the jealousy of the Lord for his people, his possession, the ones he, he died for. God gave the warning against idolatry in the second commandment, and he enforced it with this truth out of Exodus chapter 20. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We're accustomed to thinking of jealousy as entirely negative, but there is such a thing as godly jealousy. The gospel, if the gospel means anything, uh, it means that God will take you just right now, filled with passion, tempted by the world, having stumbled and fallen again and again. He yearns for your love and for your recognition that he does love you by his spirit, and he will not let you rest until you find rest in him. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ doesn't leave us in our sin and lostness? Aren't you glad Jesus came for us? Aren't you glad he yearns for our devotion? He is the only one worthy of our adoration and praise. In, if you need any encouragement, which I'm sure you do today, look at verse 6 with me. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He says he gives more grace. Isn't that amazing, those little words there? He gives a greater grace, a greater grace. Grace is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but he gives it freely. And grace, since it is sourced in God, is infinite because God is infinite. We can never exhaust it. It is never fully used up. It is more grace when you are weary. It is more grace when you are scared. It is more grace when you feel trapped, more grace when you have doubts, more grace when you have messed up in life. If you think you deserve grace, you can never have it. But if you admit you don't deserve it, you can have as much as you need. The source of conflict with others and with God begins with us as individuals. And we, as called to be peacemakers, should be the ones who rely upon him for each day as we come. Let's end by going back to Rodney King, his plaintive question, can't we all get along? Can we, can't we all just get along? Uh, the world would say no because the world has no power to change a human heart. But Jesus Christ has the power to change a human heart. If you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus for everlasting life, you can do it right where you're seated. 
He says, for by grace you are saved, unmerited favor. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Over 150 times in the New Testament, the condition for everlasting life is belief or a synonym of belief. And so the world says no, that your heart cannot change, you cannot change, but Jesus says, yes, I have greater grace. I can change your life and change your heart. And we as believers, if you're a believer here today, we need to be leading the way and bringing peace to a very broken world. We can't do everything, but we can do one thing, if you will. We can't do it all until we repent of our own worldliness. It's interesting, we talk about repentance once in a while, The word that's translated repentance, meaning having a change of mind to change my direction, occurs 58 times in the New Testament. We often think that it's, oh, you sinners, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. Well, that's not it at all. Over 58 times in the New Testament, a majority of those times are directed at people who already believe in Jesus as their Savior. And so it's ongoing life of believing and repenting of our sin after we have believed in Jesus for everlasting life. That, ha- <clears throat> that needs to happen on a regular basis. Uh, even though we are saved, we are sinners saved by grace. And that's why we have a great high priest in heaven, one who is interceding for us, advocating for us at the right hand of the Father. Because Satan is our accuser. He's the hater of our souls, and he accuses us before the throne of God. I don't know how that works, but I know the Bible declares it so. And so we need to remember the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi where he said, where there is hatred, let me sow love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for this word that you've given to us. It's a difficult word, Lord, and it brings us up short, uh, and many of us have been brought up short, I'm sure, here today by this word from James. We thank you, Lord, that you are exhorting us to live out what we say we believe. And Lord, I pray today that you would do whatever it takes to bring our passions into full submission before you. We pray that you would send your spirit to cleanse us from the inside out and root out our love for the world and replace it for a fervent, fresh love for Jesus Christ. And Lord, for anyone here who has never believed in Jesus for everlasting life, I pray for them that this day can be the day of their salvation, that they can know for sure that if they were to die today, they will find themselves immediately in your presence. And Lord, we thank you for that promise from Scripture, and we pray for them for their salvation. We ask in the name and the perfect, holy, all-powerful name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Would you please stand as we sing our last song together?